car. That's the thing. Thirty years ago, there would be no danger of this thing hopping off of my belt because of being crowded, but that's the way it is. Did you notice in those shots how Len has aged and the pastor has aged, but the bride has not aged? This is true. This is very true. So I wonder if we could get some more lights on by now. I think that would be great because I want you to look at your Bibles. That's what we're here for, right? But it is a delight for me. I would have preferred to say it is a delight for us, but as Lynn already explained, uh, the Lord had different plans for us in this very day. Uh, We said goodbye to Jane's mom. Uh, She lives in a retirement complex right in Escondido. We dropped off some books that Jane had enjoyed reading and thought we were on our way, did a couple errands, and by the time we got home at 10 after 10, there was a message on our machine from the retirement complex saying that her mom, we knew we had to get there early because her mom already had, her mom just turned 90, by the way, She had an agenda for the day. She was going to go on the van and do some shopping, Radio Shack and a few other things. And I don't know what she was doing in Radio Shack. You know, probably excited about some new electronic doodad. She fell. And uh, so Jane headed over to the hospital. I went over there a bit later. As Len said, she has broken her jaw. She's home. The doctor, the specialist to whom Jane took her after the emergency room, down in San Diego, has said she won't need surgery, so we're grateful for that. But uh, it was obvious that Jane belonged there as well. Uh, We were looking forward to this. I'm going to move this out because I don't need it. I have this other thing. Uh, Because of our fond memories of the Blue Ridge Bible Conference Association, uh, I never quite understood in all the years we went, because it was always at Canyon Meadows, why it was called Blue Ridge But I think Dwight Poundstone had an explanation for that. I think at one point there were some blue ridges that it started on, and now we're back up into real mountains, and so it sort of counts again. It's fitting its name, Blue Ridge Bible Conference Association these days as well. But we had wonderful times um, when our son and his wife uh, were planning and have arrived home from Asia where they are working in Bible translation uh, and I mentioned that we were going to be here. He said, boy, it would be great if we could all be there because I remember the great times we had at Canyon Meadows. Uh, he'd love to have uh, his, their three kids experience it as well. Uh, and I remember those times. I remember moving from the, my grandfather's heavily oiled canvas tent that was like a bake oven. I, that was not one of my favorite years, actually. Uh, to finally, when we became registrars, we got to be in one of the dorms with bunk beds. That was, we were close to arriving by that point. Uh, and then once I got to be speaker and we got in those, that snazzy motel wing, ooh, that was cool, you know. That was the last time you invited me. No. Except this time. I want to go back and tell Dr. Godfrey how many there are now when I'm speaking as opposed to when he was speaking. Thanks, Mark. This is a wonderful time. Uh, Some of you kids here are going to think of this when you have kids. And you're going to say, I want to bring my family back here. Uh, I'm tempted to ask, are there there parents who came here as kids, I mean besides Sanchez's, uh, who are bringing your kids back? Yeah, okay. And grandparents, absolutely, Grandpa John. Yeah, this is exciting. 
This is exciting. Uh, teens, she may be here this week, guys. He may be here. You never can tell. Could be, could be, it might happen. This is exciting. I know that OP kids love to be at family conference because we get the New Horizons magazine and read with great interest the May issue about camping and family conferences. And I don't think the Baldwins are part of Blue Ridge, uh, but I was interested in this paragraph that Kevin and Karen Baldwin had decided one year to do a different vacation and their kids protested because, as Alyssa said, age 13, it's fun to run around the campsite with the other kids. You have to go to the meeting and listen to the speaker twice a day. It's okay, it doesn't last too long. (laughs) Now, I don't think that Baldwins are part of our group because you kids only have to listen to the speaker once a day. But to make up for it, I am going to make it way too long every evening. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. So, anyway... We are going to be thinking this week about the book of Acts, uh, about that book that is one of a kind in the New Testament. God chose and the Holy Spirit inspired four men to write the history of Jesus' earthly ministry from his birth through his baptism by John, his miracles, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, the resurrection appearances, four men. Only one of those did the Holy Spirit move to write the rest of the story. To write the story about what Jesus continued to do after his resurrection and his ascension through the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit. Luke, who wrote the third gospel, also wrote the book of Acts. And we want to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to us because in this book, as it illustrates for us, What God is also telling us in the rest of the New Testament, the letters of Paul and of Peter and of John and the other New Testament books, in this book we see kind of a case study, an illustration of how the Lord Jesus launched his church, which had begun back in Eden, into the new covenant, into the era of fulfillment, into the area in which we still live. There's some different things about when the apostles lived and when when we live. But they and we together live on this side of the great watershed of history that is the great work of Jesus in his death and resurrection. And until Jesus comes again, so much of what we're going to see in the book of Acts will characterize what we should expect to see in our congregations as well because Jesus is alive, Jesus is ruling, and Jesus by his Holy Spirit is present among us. Well, that by way of quick introduction, this evening you'll see an outline in the notebook, if you got a notebook, whatever that magic age was beyond which you get a notebook. Um, We're going to focus on this overall theme of the book of Acts, that it is about Jesus, the living Lord who acts and who teaches. And uh, to begin... Our reflection, I want to read the first 11 verses of the first chapter as uh, the Holy Spirit, speaking through Luke, introduces us to this uh, great narrative. So hear God's word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and at all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's ask God to teach us from his word by his spirit this evening. Father, we bow before you this evening. Grateful for all that you have given to us. Thankful for this uh, week that we can spend uh, away from other pressures and uh, other responsibilities. uh, That we can be here in this place that uh, displays your artistry, your beauty as the creator of your world and your universe. But Father, especially we thank you that we can come and hear your voice, hear your word. The word that speaks to us of Jesus. The word in which Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, speaks to us still. He is still acting. He's still teaching. Father, work in our hearts and in our lives. A lively hope and trust and confidence that Christ is at work building his church through us. Through weak folk. Through foolish folk. Through ignorant folk such as we are. That Jesus is displaying His power and His mercy. So Father, encourage us from the Word. Rebuke us for our little faith when we need that rebuke. And especially fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We pray in His name. Amen. Tonight is intro. The other three nights, especially when the kids are here, we're going to have some of the really fun and exciting stories in the book of Acts. Tomorrow night, how Jesus made the lame man leap for joy. And then Wednesday night, how Jesus captured a violent enemy. And on Thursday night, how Jesus shook jail doors open and captured a jailer. Now you may have noticed that the subject of each of those sentences is Jesus. That he is the one who is active throughout this book. Not everybody would say that necessarily. Actually, fairly early in the history of the church, some of the early copies and manuscripts of, in Greek of this book was called sometimes just Acts, Proxes, sometimes Acts of Apostles, Proxes Apostolon. You Greek scholars remember that, right? Sometimes Acts of all the Apostles. So whose acts is this book of acts about? 
Well, a lot of people said Acts. Yeah, I mean the apostles. Yeah, it's about Jesus, right? It's about Jesus. Now, certainly, you don't see Jesus often in the book of Acts. We do in this opening scene. In the Apostle Paul, we'll see him again very vividly, terrifyingly, in Acts chapter 9, as we will see. But Jesus is the one who is active. Yes, Peter is active. John is active. There's some fellow named Paul that I think we read a little bit about in this book of Acts as well. But Jesus is the one who is really active from beginning to end. And that's the point that Luke opens with, really in his describing his gospel in verse 1. The first book, that's his gospel. I dealt with what Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up. You hear that began? What's he saying about this second book? It's about what Jesus continues to do and to teach after he was taken up into heaven. Let me put it to you this way, and kids, you can tune into this. The point of tonight is, Jesus is not like John Switzerland, and he's not like Ike. How many of you have heard of John Switzerland? That's what I was afraid of. When our kids came to camp, our younger son, Peter, sometimes, I don't remember whether Peter brought John Switzerland along or not. John Switzerland was his so we thought, imaginary friend. Peter would do different things around the neighborhood with John Switzerland. We'd say, Pete, who are you talking to? John Switzerland. Why are you taking so much food? I'm sharing with John Switzerland. When we disciplined Peter, John Switzerland would get mad and they'd run away from home together all the way out to the front sidewalk and then they'd talk about it, change their mind and come back in. Uh, We couldn't see John Switzerland. We couldn't hear John Switzerland. But uh, Peter was sure that John Switzerland was really there. And we were just as sure that John Switzerland was a figment of little Pete's imagination. Jesus is not like John Switzerland. He's not a figment of of anybody's imagination. I I have talked to Pete. He gave me a call on Father's Day. Uh, He's a lawyer now. I don't think he argues John Switzerland in the courtroom, but... uh, you know, I didn't ask him if he ever talked with John Switzerland anymore in other settings. But uh, Jesus is not an imaginary friend. And that's one of the points that you see Luke makes right at the beginning here. When picking up from what he's done in the, at the end of his gospel, if you were to look, and we will look later on in the morning sessions uh, at, at the end of Luke's gospel, Luke 24, Uh, There we have, again, those resounding demonstrations that Jesus is really alive from the dead, that the real body which really suffered on the cross, that had nails nailed into his wrists and then nailed into the cross, the side that was pierced by the, the spear had come gloriously alive in new creation life. But he could eat fish. And people could touch him. Well, see, Luke says, I want you to remember that, Theophilus, when you turn now the page and come to volume two. Remember that over a period of 40 days, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs. Some of our English translations say many convincing proofs. And that's good to add that in there. It's a single word, but it really means absolute 
undeniable demonstration that Jesus was alive from the dead. Jesus is not like John Switzerland. But Jesus is not like Ike either. And by Ike I mean Dwight D. Eisenhower, which few of you remember. You may even remember I like Ike buttons. Now when he was running for president, I was only a toddler. I was not, though despite the gray in the beard, I was not qualified to vote. And I don't think I, I, I used one. But interestingly enough, as I was thinking about how to start this first session, a friend of ours loaned us the DVD of a, a probably a made-for-TV film a couple years ago, Ike Countdown to D-Day. I don't know if you saw it. Tom Selleck played Ike uh, Eisenhower. And as we were watching it, we realized that we were watching it on, of all days, June 6th. Amazing. And, you know, we were about two-thirds of the way in, and they were talking about, shall we go on the 5th? Shall we wait till July? Shall we go back and forth? They were about to go on the 5th. We were watching on the 6th. We were watching it on the anniversary of D-Day this year. And Ike wrestled back and forth with when to launch that Allied invasion in World War II that would land on the beaches of Normandy and northern France and begin to try to retake the continent from Nazism and from the tyranny and the cruelty of the Nazi invaders of France and almost all the rest of Europe. And kept giving grief to the weatherman because he was trying to predict what was going, what was going to come in and that landing was going to be touchy enough in relatively good weather. But the decision was made, we will go on the 6th, and then, and I don't know, I know they did a lot of research on the film, I don't know whether Ike really said this or not, but in the film, he turned to one of his key generals and he said, now that decision is made, now I'm the audience. I'm just a member of the audience. Yes, yes, I've got a front row center seat. But this decision that I've made now puts me in the audience and I will watch as the victory, if it comes, will come through the courage of the fighting men, fighting men in those days, not fighting men and women, the fighting men who will land on that pebbled beach in Normandy. I can make that decision, I can issue the order, but I can't go with those fighters. That was not his calling, that was not his commission. He had to stay in the central command in England. Jesus is not like Ike. He is our supreme commander. He has given us marching orders. But he doesn't sit in heaven only as the audience front row center watching. He goes with his soldiers. Jesus, in that sense, is a better commander than Ike ever could have been. Although I came away from that film with tremendous respect for that general who in the next few years, became our president in the 50s. This is a book about what Jesus continues to do and to teach. If, he, if his first book, the gospel, is about what Jesus began to do and to teach, this book is about what Jesus continues to do and teach. And I want to give us just a sample of that this evening in the time that we have. Jesus does. He is the actor of acts. He's the doer of the deeds that launch the church into this last day's expression of the covenant people of God. What does he do? Well, he chooses leaders for the church. One of the very interesting things that Luke points out in this passage that we read is right in the middle of, or toward the end of verse 2, 
He throws in this little detail that Jesus, over this period between his resurrection and his ascent to heaven, he gave instructions to the apostles he had chosen. The ones he had chosen. Well, Luke had told us about that choosing back in the sixth chapter of the gospel. And he gave the names there later on in this first chapter of Acts. He's going to give us the names, only 11 at this point. Judas has been the traitor. Judas has died because of his treachery. But now Luke wants us to remember that Jesus chose these men early on in his ministry. And he wants us to remember that Jesus chose these men because because at the end of this chapter, he's going to show us Jesus choosing a replacement for Judas. From verses 12 to the end of chapter 1, we read about their praying together, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we read about Peter standing up in the midst of the brothers, about 120 all there together. And Peter finally is beginning to learn how to read the Bible. Luke 24, the end of the Gospel, shows us Jesus teaching his disciples how to read the Bible. It's all about himself. Law of Moses, the prophets, which include, for the Hebrews, include the historical books, what we call historical books, the Psalms, which head up the third part of the Hebrew canon of the Bible. It's all about him. Peter's getting it now. And he's reading Psalms about the Messiah's being betrayed by a close friend, and he says, whatever it may have meant in David's experience, and it may have been some close associate of David that was the occasion originally, really that associate was just a preview of Judas. And Judas has to be replaced. The number of the heads of the new Israel, the twelve number, has to be complete. And so the apostles begin to look at who's qualified to be a witness of the resurrection with them. And it needs to be somebody who's traveled with Jesus a long time, actually from the baptism of John and throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, all the way to the resurrection and the resurrection appearances. And they get the whole pool narrowed down to two men. And at that point, they don't vote. And at that point, they don't do rock, paper, scissors. At that point, they pray. And they say, Lord, you know everybody's hearts. Show which one you have chosen. And they cast lots. An Old Testament way of seeking God to reveal His will. And the lot falls to Matthias and he becomes numbered with the twelve. Jesus has chosen a replacement for Judas. Jesus always chooses apostles. Fast forward to Acts 9. We're going to be looking at that in a couple nights. But uh, again, here you have a most unlikely apostle. Actually a man who hates the message of Jesus. Saul of Tarsus, confident in his self-righteous law-keeping. Confident that he can present himself acceptable to God as well as anybody could having faithfully kept the commandments of God. And when he hasn't kept all the commandments, he's offered the appropriate sacrifice. He's covered. But he's outraged at these people who are preaching that a man hanged on a tree could possibly be God's beloved Messiah. He knows what hangs on a tree means. It means cursed by God. Read Deuteronomy 21. And so he is out 
to kill off the Jesus movement. And Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus and blinds him with glory. We'll look more about that. But then Jesus goes to a faithful, believing man named Ananias. And he says, Ananias, I want you to go and pray for Saul because he's my chosen vessel. I chose him. I chose him to carry my name before Gentiles and before kings and before the sons of Israel. I chose him. Well, Jesus chooses. He chooses by supernatural revelation, lots. He chooses by supernatural revelation, visions. But that's pretty unique stuff. That belongs to when the apostles are alive, when God is giving new covenant scripture and laying the foundation. God isn't doing that today. He's laid the foundation. We have what we need in the Bible. Does Jesus still continue to choose leaders for his church? Oh, yeah. Look back at Acts 6, for example. In Acts 6, we're going to look at that Wednesday morning. Older folks, we'll get back in more detail. But in Acts 6, there are some widows in the church who are going hungry. Because the infrastructure has not kept pace with the growth of the church. And these widows especially belong to the Greek-speaking portion of the church. It's basically all in Jerusalem still. Not much is scattered beyond Jerusalem. Luke hasn't told us of anything beyond Jerusalem yet. But there were so many different gatherings of believers, some worshiping, no doubt, in the Aramaic language and some in Greek, that some of these house churches are being overlooked with the daily distribution of food for the need of the widows. The apostles know that we need more leaders. And interestingly, you know what they do? They don't say, well, let's see, who we got here? I'll pick Len, he's got gray hair, and, you know. Grover, where's Grover? Oh, no, we've got to spread it out to other families. John, you know, no, no. They say, what you need, congregation, are men full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. Now you pray and you find them. Now we don't know the process by which they identified Stephen and Philip and all the others, the rest of the seven. But it was the congregation applying the biblical principles revealed by the apostles. You need men full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit to take this important task of ministering to the material needs of the widows. Jesus chose. Jesus chose those leaders through the congregation through the congregation's discernment as well. Jesus chooses his leaders. But remember, he's not like Ike in that he chooses leaders and then says, well, guys, go to it. I'll be in heaven. If you have a problem, give me a call. But, uh, you know, I'll be in the audience, front row center. No, no. Jesus goes with and he acts. That's the point that Peter and John make in Acts chapter 3. We're going to look at that tomorrow night in more depth. I'm just whetting your appetite here. In Acts 3, when suddenly a mob gathers, curious because they see this man that they had walked past for, who knows, 30, 35, 40 years maybe. He was over 40 years old. We know that. It says in the text he'd been begging for much of that time at the temple gate because he could not walk and everybody knew it. From birth, he had not been able to walk and now he's leaping around the temple courts and they're staring at Peter and John. What mighty men these guys must be. 
And Peter's going, whoa, 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 time out, time out, time out. Don't look at us. It's not our power. It's not our piety. The strength isn't in us. And it's not that we're so good that God has to obey our prayers in some way. No, no. It's the name of Jesus that has given this man complete healing. In fact, if you read through chapters 3 and 4, you find that over and over again. From Peter's first words to that man in chapter 3, 6, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. To 3.16, when Peter says to the crowd, it's by faith in Jesus' name, that Jesus' name, twice in that verse, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And then when Peter and John are arrested and the Jewish leadership says, by what name have you done this? Peter says, well, if you want to know how an act of kindness was done to a very needy man, I love the way Peter phrases that, you have a problem with an act of kindness? Well, okay, I admit it. It was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him this man is standing before you well. And a sentence or two later, a verse that we know so well, there is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved power of Jesus' name. Now, the power of Jesus' name is not a magic abracadabra formula. Some people thought it was. Turn over to Acts 19. You find seven sons of an alleged high priest of the Jewish people called Sceva. History knows of no such high priest by that name, so who knows why he claimed that. But these guys thought they were exorcists, thought they could cast demons out of people, And in the ancient world, the theory was the more names you heap up of deities to cast out a demon, the more power you're going to have. And we have amulets from from Ephesus and elsewhere that have name after name after name of pagan Greek gods, uh, names of the Lord from the Old Testament, and Jesus' name mixed into them as well. These sons of Sceva tried to use Jesus' name to cast out a demon. And the demon, speaking through the man... Uh, that they were trying to exorcise, said, Jesus I know very well. And Paul, you say Paul preaches Jesus. Paul I know, but who are you? And the demon-possessed man jumped on them, beat them up, stripped them, and sent them running out bleeding. Actually looking like demon-possessed people. If you remember the demon-possessed man in Gerasa, he was naked and he was bleeding. These guys ended up looking like him. See, the name is not magic, but it's because faith in Jesus' name is a recognition of the presence and the power of Jesus by His Holy Spirit at work among His people. And that's the key, to trust in Jesus as He's revealed Himself in His Word and to expect Him to work in all kinds of ways to set people free from the oppression of the evil one. The name of Jesus fits into that whole theme that we find in the whole Bible, that where God places His name, there He shows His presence and His power. Remember in Deuteronomy 12 when God said to Moses, when the people go into the land, there's going to be one place that they're to worship. There's going to be one place of sanctuary, not on every high place all over the the nation. One place, we know that would be Mount Zion in Jerusalem. 
And in that place I will put my name. I will make my presence known there in a very special way for for salvation. Jesus is acting. And Jesus is teaching. He empowers his speakers. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, Soon, soon, I will fulfill that great prophecy that John the baptizer made about me, that I would baptize in the Holy Spirit. In a few days, you will be clothed with power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. There's an incredibly rich Old Testament background to that that I have to save for tomorrow morning. But Jesus says, when I give the Spirit, I'm going to open your mouths and I'm going to teach and preach through you. Now think about the contrast in these guys. From the days around Jesus' death and before his resurrection to what we hear Peter preaching 50-some days later on the day of Pentecost. Remember how terrified they were as Jesus was heading for Jerusalem and he kept saying, I'm going there to suffer. Not to be crowned, but to be crucified. Not to be welcomed, but to be rejected. Get ready for it. I've fixed my face like flint, as Isaiah portrayed the servant of the Lord. I'm ready. And they were terrified and they were confused. And and then when it all happened, they were heartbroken, even though he prepared them for it. And then when the report came on resurrection morning that the women had seen a vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive, remember what the two on the road to Emmaus says? (laughs) The women, see, they saw angels, but they didn't see him. And they're downcast. We had thought this Jesus was going to be the one who would redeem Israel. So they told the stranger they didn't know who he was until he broke bread and suddenly they saw that it was Jesus. But of course, he'd prepared them to see himself, to recognize who he was because he'd been teaching them from the scripture that it was necessary that he suffer and then enter into his glory. So all of those Bible studies over that 40-day period, not only the demonstration that he was alive from the dead, but the demonstration from the Old Testament scriptures that it had to be this way for him to redeem people like you and me from our sin. That laid the foundation, certainly, for the boldness that we hear in Peter on the day of Pentecost. But all that good information, Holy Spirit-given information, Son of God-given information, would not have transformed them unless Jesus had also given that wonderful gift of the power of the Holy Spirit to open their mouths with this kind of boldness. Jesus, all the way through Acts, goes with his messengers. I I am tempted to ignore this watch, but I won't completely. I have to take you to one passage, at least, in Acts 18. Paul is in Corinth at the beginning of Acts 18. He's had 
some fruit in his ministry in the, uh, the Berkeley of the ancient world, Athens, that university town, always interested in the new and the bizarre, um, but not much fruit. And he comes to Corinth. And Paul, of course, is never afraid, always bold, never has misgivings, courageous at all times. You're supposed to be laughing now. But isn't that the image people have of Paul? You know, courageous, bold, always. I mean, there are New Testament scholars who criticize the book of Acts because they say Acts portrays Paul as always brave and strong and courageous and effective, whereas the real Paul, when you read his letters, was full of fear and trembling and so on. Is Luke really sort of covering over Paul's weakness? Well... Paul has already gotten kicked out of the synagogue in Corinth by the time we get to verse 9. Although the synagogue ruler has come to faith in Jesus, that's interesting. But now Paul has had to move to next door to a private home. And we read in verse 9, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Now, Jesus never wastes his words. Jesus never tells somebody, don't do something unless they're tempted to do it, right? Do not be afraid. Paul, you're tempted to be afraid. Because you know that as you go from place to place, sometimes the opposition comes from Jewish quarters, sometimes the opposition comes from Gentile pagan quarters, but you know that people don't like to hear this amazing good news. Now you've been put out of the synagogue. Yes, some people have come to faith, but uh, you're not in that place where you have the platform to open the Scriptures to everybody who might come to hear the Scriptures read. You're in a house now. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. He's not like Ike. He's not back in England, caring, hoping that the invasion is going to work. He's with the troops on the beaches of Normandy. I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city, many who are my people. And Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now more trouble came, interestingly. Accusations to the Roman governor. But the Roman governor shrugged them off and said, Ah, internal quibble, you guys figure it out. And nobody hurt Paul at Corinth. Not that nobody hurt Paul any place. Paul had plenty of hurt. But Jesus' promise, I am with you, went with Paul all the way through. I am with you. And notice what Jesus said, I have many people in this city. Your ministry will be as fruitful as I intend it to be. Because I have people here who are registered. Not registered as citizens of Corinth. They may or may not have been that. But they are registered in my book of life. The Lamb's book of life, which was written before eternity began. And I will call them through the preaching of the Word to trust in me. And my call will give life to the dead. And this is our last point. You see, Jesus doesn't only empower the preachers and the teachers. And as we'll see in this week, 
everyday believers who are opening their mouth to express the good news of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection. He doesn't only empower us to speak, he also works in the people that are listening. And he opens their hearts. Acts 3.26, Peter as this lame man is leaping around, Peter says, God has raised up Jesus and sent him to you first. That is, you children descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Only Jesus can do that. But Jesus can do that. Turn people away from rebellion. You have members of your family that you're praying for now. I think of families in our church who have young adult children raised in covenant homes, taught the scriptures, and who are heart sick. Think of a couple of young men who right now are telling their parents and telling us, their shepherds, they don't want to have anything to do with it. I don't know God's secret plan, but I'm heartened when I know that Jesus has names written in his book and that he can open hearts. He can turn people around. Don't give up praying. Don't give up loving. Don't give up sharing as the Lord opens opportunities. Acts 5.31 Again, Peter and John now are, and others are, are, of the apostles are called to uh, to answer to the, to the Jewish leaders. And, and they say, God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Repentance is not something you do on your own. You do have to turn, but you can only turn if God turns you. And Jesus is the one who gives that turn of heart that turns us back to God. And he does it not just for Israel, but he does it for the nations as well. The end of Acts 13 when the apostles come back and they report on Acts 14, when they report on all that's happened, the church says, wow, God has given repentance even to the Gentiles. Not only to the insiders who were raised in covenant homes, but to outsiders who never darkened the door of a church until the message of the gospel went out to them. He gives repentance to those kinds of folk too. He opens hearts. Acts 16, 14 is in your outline. What a wonderful text. Paul goes to a city, significant city, military city, kind of the San Diego of the ancient world maybe, huh? Philippi. A lot of retired military in Philippi because it was a Roman colony. Maybe the jailer was a retired army uh, soldier as well. We don't know. But uh, a, a significant city, but without enough of a core of Jewish men... You needed ten Jewish men with enough leisure to study Torah to form a what was called a minyan to be able to establish a synagogue. There was not ten Jewish men who could study Torah. There was no synagogue in Philippi. Well, Paul and his team said, well, where, should, where would people who are hungry to know the God of Israel, where would they gather? Maybe there's a river outside. Maybe they'll go there. And they find a group of women. Prominent among them is a businesswoman who works in textiles and imports, especially purple. She's from Thyatira over in what is now Turkey. And she imports her, her cloth over into the northern part of Greece. 
And as Paul is preaching to this group of women, Luke just very quietly says, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to receive the things that were being spoken by Paul. No big fanfare. Nobody falling down and speaking in some strange language. Nothing like that. But an absolutely astonishing act of power that only the Lord Jesus could accomplish. To open a heart and to introduce life into that heart by introducing the gospel of His grace. That's what I hope we will see together this week. I'm convinced that this is what the Holy Spirit is teaching us through Luke, that Jesus is active in His church in these ways and other ways so that we will cultivate a lively confidence that Jesus is not only our living and risen Lord reigning in heaven as He is, but also that He is personally present and powerfully active with His church Think of Revelation 2 and 3. Walking among His lampstands, among His people, by the power and the presence of His Holy Spirit, even through what seems like very ordinary means in our Christian life, in our worship, in our service. I hope we'll go away convinced supernaturalists, convinced that God does things beyond anything we could ask or imagine by His Word, through His Spirit, that Jesus is alive and active to build His church among us. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we come to You through Your beloved Son. We could come to You in no other way. We don't dare, we don't dare stand on our record, on our righteousness, on our very spotty faithfulness, even with Your Spirit's mighty work in our lives, still we stumble, we fall, and we cannot stand before You clothed in our righteousness. We can only come to You because You clothed us in Jesus' righteousness. And we come to You asking because we know Jesus is praying for us at Your right hand. The Spirit prays within us asking that You will open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see the glory of Christ in a new way this week, that we might see the marvel of His power at work among us, transforming us into a new and living temple in which the radiance of His grace shines out to the peoples at the ends of the earth. We know from the standpoint of the first century apostles, we are at the ends of the earth around the world from that place where Jesus first commissioned them to be witnesses. And we know there are other ends of the earth yet to be reached, but Father, You've placed us in the ends of the earth and You've called us by name. And we ask that You would lift our hopes and our expectations and our joy and our glad abandon to live in joyful confidence that Christ will glorify Himself even in the midst of our weakness as His name is placed on those whose names He has written in His book of life for all eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.